Thank you for tuning in to Right Size Security with Simon Gibson and Steve Ginsberg. If you like this episode, please check out the other episodes in this series and go to gigaohm.com to find more of Simon and Steve's research and insights. Welcome to Right Size Security, a podcast where we discuss all manner of infosec, from enterprise security to practical security every business can use, all the way down to end user security. Your hosts for Right Size Security are me, Simon Gibson, longtime CISO. And me, Steve Ginsberg, former head of operations and CIO. For this episode of Right Size Security, we'll discuss advanced behavioral analytics and threat detection technology, what we're calling the next generation SIM or user behavioral analytics, UBA. We settled on advanced behavioral analytics because it seemed to more accurately describe what it accomplished and what it did. Uh, Today, we're going to be discussing what ABA or next-gen SIMs tell you, how they evolved, what you need to configure and to do to deploy one, considerations when you're shopping for one, and how it will fit with the rest of your security program. We're also going to discuss some of the challenges, and of course, we'll have our short topics uh, before we get into it. Thanks for tuning in. All right, so today on Right Size Security, we're going to discuss SIMs and advanced behavioral analytics, sort of the next generations. But before we get into it, Steve, voting machines. We had a little conversation about them. Sure, yeah. I just thought it would be an interesting topic to to maybe address a little bit, uh, both for itself and then for the kind of the wider implications for enterprise security and sort of how those things, uh, the approach might um, be interlocked. So, you know, when I think about voting machines, you know, obviously we're at a part where um, for years, uh, different municipalities have been moving towards uh, digital voting, uh, and there's always been a lot of concern about how do you make these things safe. Mm. And it's something you know I've only read a little bit about it, but you've tried to wrap my head around it uh, as well. And it was interesting. One of the things I saw was even the leading um, or one of the leading voting machine companies, they've now flipped and said, well, you need a digital paper trail. So like one of the things in security in that aspect is okay you know, there needs to be some outside the system uh, verification and kind of back up from there. And then when I, th- when I think about them, I think about what would make it the most secure. So, you know, for me, it would seem like open source software uh, would be great and something where the, every push, you know, as we see in the open source community, a lot of, you know, every push is uh, done from an open repository. Um, you know, you probably have some thoughts about the, um, the security around the the tunnels to do it, the you know cryptology that needs to go to make sure that you know kind of sign keys everywhere, obviously, and that type of thing. It's it's just kind of that classic thing about how do you make sure that the administrators of the system can't be corrupt enough. So you know, and then you know, I think to analyze it, obviously, you have to go up the full stack. So what's the physical security of you know each of the facilities? What's the you know and the physical uh, security of the hardware? You know, because if there's obviously if there's ROM chips. Uh, on the motherboard, then you still might not have security, uh, even if the software is secure. Then at the system and OS level, those libraries, then the application level and, and kind of beyond. Yeah, it's I, I have done a little bit of thinking and know some people. Again, this goes back to our discussion last last episode when we considered privacy 
you know, it is a very complicated ecosystem because even when you think about voting machines that produce a digital paper and you have a human verify that this is indeed what they meant to vote for. And so you sort of hope that that all works. You, you still need computers to get people on voter rolls. You still need people, you know, you need to be able to sign up to vote. You need to have a ballot delivered to your house. You, you still need all that. And that all involves computers. So now you have that whole part of the universe to consider as well, apart from just the sign, you know, if, if the voting machines become too hard to attack, somebody will push down somewhere else. And that the whole, the whole, the whole of it is, is what I think you have to look at holistically when it comes to protecting those. And that's where guys like Matt Blaze, for example, is a professor who would, studies nothing but voting machines in his class. You know, it's, it's entirely devoted to voting security and the ecosystem around him. And I, I think, you know, what, what, if we're going to have like a real serious conversation about this, then this is one of those things where government needs to involve the academics and have a real serious discussion about this. That's sort of the same way Wassener was done. And, and you know, whether, depending, say what you want about how that's working right now, but having a real serious conversation about it, I think, is what we need to do. Yeah, I think one of the things I'm encouraged about is it is a worldwide uh, problem, right? So that solutions should be coming up you know, all around the globe that could contribute to that. Um, and hopefully we'll see maybe some unified efforts, you know, almost like a UN of voting or something like that, you know, an international effort to bring the best practices forward. And perhaps that's already underway and I'm just not aware of it. Um, but I think, it, you know, for a conversation about Sims, it's interesting because you have, it's ultimately kind of the same question, which is how do I know everything that's going on that I should know? to make sure that these systems are secure or yeah. at least as secure as they can be given what efforts we are willing to make in this area. Absolutely. All right, so let's get into it. Advanced behavioral analytics when we get back. Let's get into SIMS now or advanced behavioral analytic platforms, user behavioral analytics, sort of call them what you want. Uh, you know, my feeling is that these tools are deployed and designed to detect uh, behavior, uh, wanted and unwanted behavior, to be able to aggregate logs, collect telemetry from systems, do analysis, baseline normal or normal-ish, and abnormal or abnormal-ish, and, and give that information to the security teams, or very often, uh, as is the case, the operations or systems administration team. Um, you know, uh, when we think about sort of the earliest Sim, it was, it was, you know, there were arc sites and net witnesses of the world, but this, the one that really caught fire and took off was Splunk. And that was built for systems administrators. That was really built to answer the question in a large, you know, in a large group of open systems, m machines, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, and an event occurred, what was the first event that caused the cascading failure? Or what was the message that was sent through the system that caused the problem. And Splunk was designed to look at that. And I think that's that's a good way to think about the current generation of advanced behavioral analytics platforms. Yeah, I think the, the correlation was obviously a very central part. Uh, you know, and I think we, and we talked about it before. It's really correlation and search uh, were the key characteristics of Splunk uh, that really moved it forward. So before that, it would seem most administrators teams were hopefully moving towards taking their syslogs into a, a united yeah. place. And that still has its own merit, no matter how you do it, yeah. uh, for sure. And then, but bring that, and then starting to run maybe uh, regex, custom parole, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, it. It was super awk and grep, and, and Splunk came along and said, you know, you don't need to do that. We can make a regular expression search engine that isn't based on any data structure. You pick it, 
and it's you know it's, it's across a time continuum. It's a regular expression across time, and and we will track that for you, whatever whatever you're looking for. And I think that was kind of the heart of the 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 explosion. Well, certainly the adoption of SIM by security teams. The you know the the question of what was the first event that caused this problem, and in, you know in my case, a lot of the times it was uh, a directory got removed, or a system got rebooted, or that shouldn't have been, or some change occurred on a system that wasn't you know meant to caused a problem. Who done it? And Splunk was exceptionally good at analyzing those logs across many systems, tracing who logged into what, where what IP they came from what command was issued, what return code was given, where they went next. Splunk was exceedingly good at, at being able to quickly take many, many hundreds of gigs of logs and quickly answer those kinds of questions. Yeah, I think you know, in, in some of my writing too, we were uh, trying to address that for enterprise teams to think a little bit about, too about what is the sophistication of their teams. So for example, you know, some um, teams, their security operators would have no trouble um, writing that regex and that Perl and you know, could write... I mean, I'd, we'd seen some pretty great examples back in the day. Mm-hmm. And then, so then when you look at something like Splunk, a lot of that is done for you. You're in the console uh, and it b- does two things. So for advanced teams, it frees up their time to do something else. So on the one hand, it's great to hack regex. On the other hand, that takes time no matter how good you are. And so if you've got tools that enable you to do that, you can be spending your advanced time on something else. Yeah. And then for teams who just don't have that uh, capability, it's great to be able to just go into a tool and learn that and, and make use. And I, I think with Splunk, you see a lot of adoption uh, in corporate environments and also for security teams where maybe the folks you know also aren't that technical and can make that use as well. Yeah, it it, it is one of those things where, and this is, I think, especially true in security. It is true to some extent in operations, NetOps, SysOps, um, very often you don't know the question you're going to ask until you need to ask the question. You just have a lot of data. And so um, if there's a, a particular machine compromiser behaving in a certain way you'd never expected, you may never have a canned query for that question. And the ability to have all the information in aggregate, all the information, meaning you know, if, it's, if the question you need to ask is about 10,000 systems, can you ask that of 10,000 systems? You know, Splunk was a very good tool for, for enabling that, you know, it's funny. I just read a really good thread on Twitter by Phil Venables who talked about the need for controls around data inputs. And, and I can't tell you, you know, how many times I've been involved in some sort of an incident with a Splunk and, and I've looked for all the information and two or three data feeds were down and we didn't have any information for a few weeks from a particular machine that was now very critical to whatever it was we were trying to understand. And that the controls you need to put around getting that information are just about as serious or more serious even in some cases than what you do with the information and how you store it. Yeah. You, you, you want to practice with all areas of security to make sure when you have an incident, at least as much as you can envision, right? Sometimes there'll be an emergent type of incident that you've just never seen before, but as much as you can, you want to rehearse and not assume that you're just going to be ready uh, for the forensics that you need. Uh, It also reminds me of, you know, what I consider one central issue when I think about Splunk is as a commercial product, it is, or at least it was last time I checked, set up to charge by the amount of data going into the logging system. Yes. And it can become inordinately expensive if you have a tremendous amount of logging data. Yeah, it can be real expensive real quick. But I mean, I think to be fair, we're, we're, this isn't sort of just about Splunk. It, just, it was a good example. But I do think that does kind of get us into the, the right part of you know, where we need to begin with this is, you know, what do you need to create a baseline? And what, 
what does that really mean? Because again, as, as successful, and I, and I think as, as a much adoption as Splunk saw and how sort of a little transformative it was, it, it didn't necessarily come with a lot of those analytics. Those were community generated for the most part. Now, Splunk has done a lot of that work. They have, you know, Splunk Cloud is a new offering. A lot of the annual analytics that were, were, that were uh, offered as other, you know, true SIMs or behavioral analytic detection platforms, Splunk now has as part of their offering. Um, but, but really, we, you know, talking about a baseline and at the end of the day, the holy grail of information security is observing an event on a, on a, in, a, in a system, in an ecosystem of computers and users and data and, and applications and understanding is this normal or not? Is this good or bad? Is this something that we should do something about? My, fa- my favorite story is you get a pop-up to change your password on Monday. You're busy. You ignore it. You get the pop-up Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You know, Steve, if you don't change your password on Friday, you're not going to be able to log in when you get to see, damn it, you change your password and you leave and you come back Monday and you've completely forgotten your password. And you have no idea what it is. You fail your password five or six times when your phone rings and it's your IT department. And they say, you know, Steve, can I help you? And you say, yeah, I've lost my password. I, I set it on Friday. And they verify it's you and promptly reset your password and you're off to work. You didn't put a ticket in, you know, which is always a pain when you don't have a password because you could never log in to put a ticket in. That was always sort of one of those catch-22s. But now the help desk has come along and made your day much easier. And But what happened behind the scenes there was security just worked perfectly. You failed some control. It, because that was abnormal, somebody noticed and then they followed up to see if you were you logging in, if they'd called your desk or your cell phone and you'd said, no, that's definitely not me, they would have alerted the security team and the security team would have gone into action. So that's, to me, that is the perfect example of information security working perfectly. Yeah. And I, I see those things becoming even more difficult in the era of, uh, era of ephemeral infrastructure. So, you know, and I'm still wrapping my head around this too, as you know, as the year goes on and new products are, are are coming out, and you know, just just thinking a little bit more about it, even though these concepts are not brand new uh, by any means. But when you first start in information security, I think at least I go back far enough that it really was okay. I can count how many computers I have. Uh, you know, maybe someone's going to bring something from home later. You know, later on, it started to be okay. Now you have to deal with people BYOD uh, and even BYOD routers and things like that, and hunt those down and, and kill them. Um, and then you know, you might have contractors or visitors, right? There's that whole idea of of your infrastructure changing. But even still, that's all almost glacial compared to, you know, once the VMs got added in and then Kubernetes clusters and things like that, which is really now kind of the primary mode of everything is meant to be spawned. Even entire cloud environments are meant to be spawned spontaneously and dynamically. Um, And then so really, I think knowing what's normal is that's even a greater challenge than it was even a year ago. Yeah. Yeah, the ability to to understand that. Fortunately, you know, it, there we've seen a lot of companies and and infrastructure built around understanding this specifically and giving the right permissions and credential sets because of this sort of ephemeral nature. Your ability in a microservice to connect to a data source with the right level of permissioning to get the data you're supposed to. Those are all sort of things now that that are that are much more solved than they were in the sort of glacial, you know, earlier state of, of infosec. Right. We're seeing uh non-perimeter based security 
mm-hmm. uh, policy-based, uh, AI and policy intent-based. And, and definitely yeah. identity and role-based, yep. right? I think a good example of role-based security, uh, you know, we talked to some hospitals where there's teaching going on and people are students at the daytime and then at night they're interns and they're doctors. And so they need different levels of access depending on what their role is. And that can just be a, you know, a question of, you know, are they on shift or not? You know, are they in the class? Right. So, so, and in that example, you can take to, to a microservice or Kubernetes or something. We had some folks at Pandora who had, you know, multiple roles over multiple times. And some of them became kind of the post, literally the poster children in our mind in discussions for, oh, what about that person who's been in five different roles in the company, which was great. They had, you know, different things to contribute, but uh, to your point, yeah, their policy roles changes. Yeah. And in SIM, you know, I think when, when we think about how to deploy them and what are the most important things, the baselining, and in order to do that, the instrumentation. And I think at the fundamental layer, you know, we can talk about elk stacks, for example, but the fundamental layer is going to be the storage and, and the, the retrieval of the different types of telemetry and information, whether it's syslogs, information from, you know, bespoke information from agents, um, SNMP, NetFlows, data packets, you know, from the core of your network where, you know, you might have domain controllers or server farms, DMZs from, you know, corporate to data centers, DMZs from data centers to internets. All of those different places, those ingresses, or all those key, you know, pivot places, uh, logging and sending their data, it has to go somewhere. So that's a big component of these of these devices is to collect all that data. Yeah, and it's amazing to be able to see all those streams concurrently and potentially work against uh, correlating them all into in, in interesting ways and seeing kind of emerging yeah. uh, events come from them. I mean, back in the early days of SIM, you know, the very idea was it was quite simple. It was you have a firewall at the perimeter and some sort of a DMZ and a firewall behind that. If an event happens at your perimeter DMZ firewall, maybe that it's okay. It's when that event happens on the firewall between your interior and your DMZ, now you've got an event to correlate. Now you know this thing that was just noise actually got through and triggered an event on another firewall and you can start to look at it. But with our early, you know, first generation of these, the data was, you know, just voluminous. It was huge, voluminous amounts of data and the, uh, or, or packets, right? Packets were another great way of information, but again, just such tremendous amounts of data that storing them became exceedingly difficult. Yeah, it, I mean, it's there really are so many layers to bring in now. Uh, you know, as you said, it's everything from network flows to really threat feeds of external events that you want to compare to what's happening on your network from there. Uh, maybe you want to talk just a little bit about threat feeds in the in the ABA world, uh, just because that continues to evolve uh, in terms of sort of what things are available and 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 how people kind of uh, integrate them into the sim. Yeah, um, I so I I think. For, for threat intel and for that that kind of, you know, it, it's basically data about things that are already known bad, um, which is a good thing. It, it's a, it, the problem is they're already known bad. And so people who are real serious about being bad know when they're burned. Uh, generally, uh, that's, I think, why you hear about different kind of levels or classifications of threat feeds. Certain threat feeds will identify, you know, indicators of compromise or known bad acts but they're not making it very public because they don't want the bad guy to know they've been burned. So that there is this sort of different layer. And so they're important to have. They do give you some intelligence about what's happening on your network, um, but they're definitely not the only, I mean, they're not the answer. Um, I I think for, um, uh, yeah, for understanding, you know, those kinds of things, you, you sort of need a 
few other things after that telemetry. You sort of need to understand the hierarchy of employees, right? Because remember, the goal is to create known good from known bad or goodish and badish, right? Because you may have an employee who gets a special project who's now accessing things that they maybe didn't before. And it's not bad because they are supposed to be doing it. But if you haven't been told in the security team that somebody from sales is supposed to be looking at HR information, then maybe that would look badish. But but the goal of this so is to understand not just the telemetry about the, the perimeter machines, but also about the hierarchy of who should be doing what. And then and then honestly, you know, we sort of talk a lot about um uh, data loss prevention and understanding kind of data flows. Data classification is a really important factor when we think about baselining as well. What is sensitive data? How can you define it? Um, certainly, if you're looking at traffic leaving your perimeter or moving around and you're trying to kind of get to that baseline, can you understand the data and who's sharing what? You know, one of the things that I think the role of the CIO has changed so drastically to these days is CIOs, you know, up until fairly recently, were very much in charge of data centers and networks and computers. And, and now, may, you know, maybe they were buying machines to run VMs on. But now I think the CIO maybe still has some of that. But there's a huge part of the CIO's responsibility that is understanding the interconnections between cloud services. So, you know, what we have, we have Salesforce, for example, and what data can be shared with it from our Smartsheets deployment or different employees, or how can we get data from treasury to fulfillment and payroll to the bank? And, you know, it's, it's really this understanding of, of data models between these cloud providers. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, a lot of the work is spent um, you know, as you said, understanding the roles and, and, and roles are something that if, for those of my peers who have not already jumped deeply into this, um, you know, there's a lot of nuance. So, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, a salesperson changing category, you know, when we went down this path, you know, your initial take of course is going to be, okay, engineers should have this class, you know, systems operators, uh, project managers should have this class of access to data, but then you quickly find, well, project managers are so closely coupled with engineers that if you keep them separated, you very quickly have to start finding the unifying points or they can't work. They're working on the same projects, that kind of thing. So, and yet to, you know, to your point, you still ultimately need to protect data to a pretty high level, uh, especially depending on kind of what type of organization you are. If you're a a fintech company, you know, and you have financial data, you're going to really have to, you know, you really have to protect it. If you have, uh, every company has HR data, they have to protect that. HIPAA medical data. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think the the, the point though, from all of this is, is it, it, in order for SIMS to be effective or ABA threat detection tools to work well, you, you need to understand what is normal and what, your network does, what endpoints are on it, where they communicate, where your data sources are, how human beings interact with the data, how the data is hosted on the applications, whether they're, you know, microservices coming up and down or they're humans interacting with databases or, you know, password or license files that you're hosting in your DMZ, whatever you're doing, it's that, it's that question of how all this works as an ecosystem who should access stuff. And again, you know, like you were just saying, you may have a project manager and an engineer. If you don't have a data classification program in place, it's really difficult to explain why I need to give this project manager access to something only engineers have, right? Then you, you have to just say, well, this is what the engineers have, but he's working with them or she's working with them. 
if you have a data classification project, you can say, this is definitely not stuff project managers could see, but because we have a data classification program, we can make an exception because now we understand what we're doing. Yes, and for, for mid-sized companies and beyond, um, there's really a lot of work here because it's not only understanding what these roles are today and what these data sources are today, but in most companies, all of this is very dynamic. Every department that you're working with, they're changing what software tools they use. They're changing what outsized vendors they use multiple times a year, you know, often multiple times a month if they're really, really busy. And even who your experts are in that organization who can tell you what data is being used and, and how it should be classified, at least relevant to that department, those people are changing as well. Yeah. So really catching up with all of that and making sure, to your point, that you've got a good reflection of that in the system. Um, you know, you really need tools that are as dynamic as you can be. And if it's not all happening electronically, which it probably isn't, it, you need a lot of human effort to really make sure that that stuff is codified. Yeah. And well, even effort, you need a mandate, right? You need yes. an edict that says this shall be important. And it it's not, right? I mean, it's, it is generally not the first thing that come from the board or the CEO or the exec staff. Yes. And, and, Few folks in a company would choose to have a meeting about data classification if they can be doing their actual job, whatever their yeah. job is. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a difficult balance to strike. So before, so the, I think the last part, now that we sort of summed up the need for all the, the baselining telemetry collection, the usage of, of behavioral analytic tools, the two main use cases um, are, are sort of forensic and real-time. Um, so real-time situational awareness, you know, the ability to monitor endpoints, user behavior, uh, you know, perimeters, DMZs, proxies, access points, um, to be able to monitor those in real time and detect something. So a good example is a large amount of unexpected, an unexpected large amount of data leaving your network. For some reason, you see many gigs and gigs being transferred um, and there's no obvious reason for that. That could be a really good giveaway that your database has been compromised and somebody's in the middle of taking a whole bunch of sensitive information. Um, so that's the sort of real time. The forensic use case is, is where somebody comes to you in a month or two and says, you know, you've been breached or we realize this person did something or we, we have a problem. We need to go back. And now you have to be able to understand exactly what the scope of the problem was, how much damage was done, what was taken. Yeah, especially because it's known that, you know, very common in security circles that you often don't discover a breach for a long time. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's often months, uh, weeks if you're lucky or hours if you're if you're really on it. Um, and I think the move towards systems that have automated monitoring around this uh, really is the strongest, you know, the strongest thing that one can do in this ephemeral world. And that's, but that still needs a combination. I think in order to know what you want to automate, have automated alerts and even maybe automated remediation on, you probably need visualization. So you need kind of, uh, you know, instrumentation first, data collection, visualization, manual interaction, and then kind of move up the food chain towards the best automated action. Uh, you know, that includes all this kind of awareness of what are the roles, what is the purpose, what is the criticality of data. Yeah, yeah. So when you're thinking about buying these things and we kind of get into the, what what, what are the sort of mindset, what do you want to know? The, the There's sort of the two cloud and on-prem seem to have been, you know, much more front and center today. Typically it was on-prem. People were sort of hesitant to use these kinds of tools for, uh, for cloud. Yeah. I, you know, 
those who've heard me speak at any length uh, know that I certainly started, and, and I think a good amount of my peers that came from operations especially started with a certain amount of, do I really want to send my key data into a cloud service, right? That becomes another potential concern there. Uh, but more and more when I talk to my peers now, um, you know, it really is a, that trains left the station or whatever analogy you want to use. Increasingly, to, to your point, as you said, enterprises now are hybrid multi-cloud. And so a good amount of the important data is going to be in the cloud, almost regardless of strategy now for, for, for enterprises, right? There are probably a few holdouts. And certainly, as we talked about, certain types of industry, you know, if I was a, a security, uh, like a government arms contractor, maybe I, nothing would be in the cloud, for example. You know, some companies still have a reason to have policy that, that the data is not up there. But for most companies, they've already moved through moving very important enterprise data into the cloud. And so I think the logging goes with that, which is you're still, you know, you're still going to have to work with that vendor and make sure they can be secure with your log data uh, and your SIM if that, if you're running it in the cloud, but the, taking that kind of vet is, is not considered provocative anymore. I, I think where you, there, there's the, the, you know, the concern that, that always comes up for me is that you, you get a, a better set of analytics. You sort of end up using a bit of crowdsourced intelligence when it's all shared, you kind of do get this best of breed. You get uh, other companies pen testing cloud infrastructure that you might not, you know, you, they might be able to afford a pen test that you, you couldn't on your budget. And so you benefit from anything those other pen testers found. The concern that I, I would see with, you know, with having this kind of data in a cloud is that if you are breached, that means that there is another company that also knows you're breached, right? And that it, do you want that CEO calling your CEO to tell them and what's the process when they discover you're breached and how sure are you that they are going to be confidential and take good duty of care around that information? Sure. So it's a good point where that should be contractually spelled out in a, in a purchase, right? Yeah. That's, that's a good thing to get into the, into the documents there. Um, I, I think uh, we talked about before, you know, I looked at it as kind of what is the leverage security model and, and, you know, you, you um, hinted at that in terms of the pen testing, which is, um, if you have a great operations team, it's actually very easy to say, well, a lot of vendors in the world might not be able to do as well on security as my operations team. And I think that's true and something that I continue to think uh, my peers, I continue to encourage to say, you know, for small companies, you should still really be concerned about that. And even medium sized companies, because to your earlier point also, most companies don't want to prioritize security. That's not where they see themselves as making money the most in most cases, there are some places where that, where that wouldn't be true, but generally there. And then, so, but when you look at like, we've given an example of Salesforce, for example, they have enough money leveraged to keep secure that after a certain point, I could no longer feel that I, it made sense for me to say, well, I know my security team can do a better job than they can. They've got, you know, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar business around keeping that data secure they've got teams to do it. It doesn't mean they'll never fall down, but it certainly means that they've got a good chance at remediating as quickly as anyone would or, or, or that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, that being said, there are great failures. Yeah. So you, so one needs to still be prepared for it. Yeah, I mean, I think about the security in the, in the dimensions of confidentiality, integrity, availability. And I really wonder what would happen if Salesforce was down for 72 hours yeah. or there was a breach in confidentiality that was uncovered many months later. Um, you know, I, I, 
I, I just, I don't know what would happen. That would be just a huge thing. And to your point, there are a lot of resources there at it. But uh, I think one of the things, if we've learned anything in InfoSec is that if it can happen, it's probably going to. Right. I think it's safe to, to manage for everything will fail. It's just when and what will you do when you do that. And then the question in that case is, would you feel better if you kept those eggs in the in your yeah, own absolutely. basket? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a question of how you manage the risks you have. You know, it's that it, I would get asked this question and it took me a long time to realize to be a little pissed off at it, but I would have boards ask me, are we secure? And I'm the guy in charge of security. So for me to say no sort of negates all the work I'm doing, right? right? Do you see like that's this terrible fool's errand of a question? And really what you're being asked is the wrong question because the answer is no, we're not secure. And if you really expect that we're going to get you to digital security, you are asking and thinking about this completely differently. Like what you need to know is what are our risks? How risky are they? And what are we doing about them? And have we looked at all of them? I mean, those are the right questions to ask, not are we scared? Yeah. And I think the SIM provides a valuable role in being able to give continued nuance to your answer there, mm-hmm. right? You can at least say, these are these are where we have seen events. This is where we have not seen events. This is how this summarizes, you know, all that kind of analytics around the data about, you know, what kind of events are, are showing up on our uh, on our single pane of glass every day. Well, yeah, definitely. And in the, the, the deployment of these, part of that is understanding that the SIMs will not work as well as they're designed if they have an incomplete picture. So if the SIM doesn't understand all the things it needs to get context, you're going to get not very good efficacy. You're going to get false positives, false negatives. You know, the example I gave you about the password where a human being called. So that's the problem, right? The human being is the state machine that saw the failed login that an an alarm was raised to. And then rather than having an AI or or some other sort of even sort of a smart algorithm, decide to make the phone call to your desk. We gave that to a human who then decided that it was really you who locked, who was locked out. And, and that use of humans as state engines is sort of why there's such a negative unemployment problem in InfoSec is there just, there isn't machine learning. There isn't infrastructure yet for this. Now, the good news is a bunch of the companies that we're looking at are actually working on these kinds of things. Yeah. And, and even in that example, there's a parallel for at least part of that, which is when you log into Facebook from a new machine, you know, if, if it has a, if it has another way to contact you, you know, similar here, an out of band way, it'll say, Hey, was that you? And let you either verify it or not. So, so part of that use case is getting covered uh, these days, but yeah, I think to your point here, the central point is the kind of AI and intent-based part of it. And this is true, not only for the security component, but even the infrastructure component. I think that's one of the most exciting areas that's changing right now as companies are getting more and more machine learning around different use cases. And to your point, also sharing what data they're seeing across companies and then starting to write some real intelligence to be able to react and remediate if necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when you're considering buying it, those, those are the kinds of things to be concerned with is, is the amount of data, the, the, the level of effort to instrument it, um, you know, how, how much data are you going to send? Can you get the data? If you, you know, if you have remote offices with slow connections and you've got a whole bunch of data you need to ship back from proxies or from, from different routers or switches or SNMP poles, are you going to be able to get it all? Is it going to be confusing if you get attacked and somebody decides to egress out of Jakarta maybe, and you don't have telemetry there? How effective is your system after all? So all those are the kinds of things as, as you're thinking about these things. And then I, I think the the next sort of category about this is where, where do these all fit? And, you know, you brought up legal earlier, which I, I was, you know, this business of I, I've been breached and now 
you know, not only does this other company know about it, but their engineers know about it. Anybody, you know, potentially their salespeople know about it. And, you know, how do we sort of make sure that to your point that that's written into the contracts and, and is legal okay with it? Yeah. And I mean, the security teams uh, are very often, you know, married in, in, in an ongoing effort with the legal department of the company, right? So there's a contractual part of it too. And then there's from the legal part, what response does my enterprise want us to have? Uh, what kind of things do they want to be notified right away? You know, in some cases, of course, there are even state laws about what kind of breaches you need to Absolutely. notify more publicly about. And then how are you going to go about that? And then the security team, when they're going to take action, you know, if there's a concern you gave an example about, you know, data being uh, exfiltrated, you know, if an employee is involved and then action is going to have to take part, or even if it's a third party uh, that's identified, when do you bring in the FBI? How do, how do you do that? So I think lots of legal uh, touch points and interfaces. Well, yeah. And I mean, I have done this on multiple occasions in different companies and different sort of at different scale, but, but having a, having a break glass plan ready to go is, is, is nice. You know, unfortunately, knock on wood, not had to really access it, but, um, or activated, but having corporate communications involved, having outside counsel involved, having a strike team of people who can come in if you need it involved, having, you know, understanding who the points of contact are and keeping that list fresh, right? Because, you know, people come and go all the time. The minute you put a plan together, someone's going to change departments and now that point of contact isn't relevant anymore. Yep. And another, uh, tying it back to the, you know, the SIM and the, and the data visualization and reporting is you want those interfaces to be clear, uh, so you want to be able to go to legal with a very clear answer about what you think is happening, not a, hey, we think, you know, and there might be times when all you can do is say, hey, we think this right. is sort of happening, but you want to be able to move quickly to this is what exactly happened. And I mean, I think that a lot of this, and we we are seeing this get more mature, but in the mind of the InfoSec, you know, person, generally speaking, the level of breach and sophistication are things that they get concerned with. I've seen a, you know, a fairly complex uh, attack on a fairly sensitive system from what seems to be a fairly competent adversary. This looks like it's really bad. And, and legal might come along and say, well, is it near our financial systems? And you might say, no, actually it's, you know, it's on a, a machine that we host you know, documents for stuff on. And the legal team might go, well, you know, tell me when it gets to the financial systems. So, though, but those are two very different, you know, they, different sets of concerns, right? Legal has a very different kind of, th their their job and their incentivization and their, their, you know, resources are totally different from that of InfoSec and keeping those aligned is important. And I, I do, I think, you know, we sort of talked about where does the SIM all fit in with stuff? You know, it, it can actually be the sort of central routing point the central place where all information is collected, you know, data is collected from machines, information about threat intelligence is pushed into it, things are compared, um, actions are taken. And, and it, you know, I think there has been a fair bit of that where the the single pane of glass sort of, you know, which, I, which I, a lot of security operation teams want, a lot of vendors want to sell for obvious reasons. Um, but, but just generally to, to have everybody on the same sheet of music is, is the, is the goal, whether or not there's an edict or a mandate from on high that you shall do this, having that actually does solve a lot of those problems. Yeah. And I, I think it also touches on the idea that, you know, a lot of attacks might be multi-headed and that a SIM can pr provide a wider sense of what's happening across the entire battlefield, not 
just in in one place. Well, yeah, and not not only not only multi-headed in terms of sort of the technology, but again, look at you know multifaceted and dimensional in terms of propaganda and you know and just setting people back from not knowing truth from from untruth. Right. And that's a, that's an active measures kind of attack, which is maybe very untraditional, at least in this part of the world. But but again, not something that somebody was looking for or even honestly that a sim might have picked out, you know, yet. Right. I, I do think the interesting part about a lot of this and this is true, you know, I, I used to always get asked or get asked a lot anyway about how proactive are we being? And, and the problem is you can be proactive, you can manage your risk, you can take a risk-based approach and shore things up, but there is a sort of level of, uh, I want to say sort of almost like inoculation that, that when a virus happens, you know, and you don't have any immunities to it, you get sick. And, and once the thing has happened, you start to build up antibodies. So like fake news and you know, Twitter bots and like a lot of the stuff that we've seen, you know, we have built some immunity to that now, right? I don't know that it's perfect, but it took that to happen. And so in the world of InfoSec, just because it is dynamic and changing, that that there are going to be things where you can be as careful as you want. You're not going to get everything until you've built, till it's happened to you. And now you've been sort of inoculated for it. Right. Which is a great reason to get involved, even for if there are folks who are thinking, I'd like to go down this path, but it seems overwhelming or daunting. You know, one approach is to just get going with some scope, learn how the tools work, get used to practice uh, of looking over some part of your infrastructure, learning how you interact with, respond to that, instrument it, improve it, evolve it, scale it, grow it. And then uh, as the challenge gets bigger, you're in a place where you can add from there. Yeah. Uh, the other approach, of course, being no, go through, understand really what all the inputs are as best you can to start and pick a solution that's really scaled for the entire the entire effort. Yeah, I, I don't think that's bad advice either is to pick up a specific area. Look at, you know, I, I think for a lot of the work that I've done in places I've been, it's the it, it is the um, it's the gateways between networks. It's the proxies, the, the multi-factor authenticated devices that get you from one set of machines to another environment whether that's DMZ to the internet production uh, or your corporate environment to a production environment. Those are sort of the places that I like to watch because they're, they're sort of chokeholds. It's less data. Uh, you can do things like um, only looking at outbound data from a DMZ, for example, uh, that will tell you lots of stuff. You don't need to look at inbound and outbound. It's just suddenly you've cut your level of work way, way down because if a machine's infected, it's going to beacon out. It's going to act like an infected machine. I don't necessarily need to see both directions of communication. And because people generally consume more internet than they produce, most people sort of surf and look at videos and pictures and read and produce a few emails or a website or some content. Um, because of that ratio, the amount of traffic you're looking at is much less if you're only looking at inbound. So little things like that, picking, you know, where your strengths are, whether it's, it could be a financial system, it could be your treasury system, it could be your fulfilling fulfillment system where you build things, you know, whatever the small universe is, maybe pick that and start instrumenting that and learning from it. Any advice for people on uh, data sampling? So, you know, you said, hey, go to a place where there's less data, but also uh, in each one of these places, you might be in the situation where you have to subsample. You can't take all the network traffic or that, that kind of thing. Any, any kind of advice on approach there? Um, only how I've been burned by it. I, I don't, you know, unfortunately, that's like sampling, especially with NetFlow, it is handy and it will help you. But when there's an incident, you often want as much as you can get. 
um, even if it's one directional. Uh, so I think it, it's helpful. It's definitely helpful. I mean, companies uh, like um, Corelight uh, that has, uh, it's basically consumer uh, you know, supported bro. Uh, and this is a tool that looks at network packets, summarizes them into text, and then stores what you sort of want to know about those packets. Um, again, it's a tenth of the data, uh, and you get a whole the whole amount of the information. I, I have with data sampling, um, again, the, the few instances I've had have been nice because it was good to have something rather than nothing, but I'd always wished I'd had more. Sure. Um, so I think that's that's more or less it. I think we kind of covered a fair bit about what you need to do when you're thinking about a SIM, why you want one, you know, whether it's to detect. And I think at the end of the day, you want to answer the question, is this a good event or a bad event? Is this normal or normalish? Is this bad or baddish? Uh, but then the challenges around that, it is, you know, they're not trivial. Yeah, I think this this kind of situational awareness, every enterprise should make sure they have a good story here. And I think, you know, we talked about different enterprises will have different requirements ultimately, and most enterprises will be balancing the, well, what can I afford to do now versus the other things that I need to get done. Uh, but to your point, uh, when a security event occurs, you're going to wish you did everything. Mm -hmm. And so I think moving responsibly towards is something that uh, pretty much every enterprise should be able to move forward and have a good and evolving story. Yep. Agreed. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Simon. If you enjoyed this episode of Right Size Security, please check out the other episodes in this series. Simon's recent report for GigaOM Research focuses on advanced behavioral analytics and threat detection. To find out more about next-generation information security, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future-forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, and business strategies.